Well, it's good to see you this morning. Uh, good to see all the Christmas colors. How many are wearing Christmas colors today? Can I see your hand? I see a lot of Christmas gray. Uh, a lot of Christmas. Uh, um, what happened? Okay, starting next week, you got to do something, okay? I mean, I have my Christmas blues and my Christmas turquoise on to just kind of get us ready for the season. So starting next week, you know, a little red and green or blue or purples, whatever. You look, uh, you look good this morning. You know, uh, I was just going to say, my wife and I have been kind of talking um, about our need for a car. And this past week, we were at a marvelous conference, believe it or not. It was about uh, all, global uh, impact. And uh, it was down in the Long Beach. And uh, we saw the world's first flying car. <laughs> and I thought what was really good about this is Patricia Ann, when she's uh, you know, looking for parking places at uh, Christmas time, she could be up hovering around. <laughs> It just sort of dropped down right in there. And uh, this was developed by Nate Saint. Um, some of you know Stephen Saint, his father, who was one of the five Alka missionaries killed uh, by the Alka Indians back in the 1950s. Amazing man. They've done some things, and he was one of many who were there. But um, I was going to also just say that, um, you know, as we move into the Christmas season, I appreciate Bill's... Uh, um, emphasis on the card and, and what we'd like you to do, actually he got a little bit upside down, you're to turn in the bottom part and keep the top part with a little star on it yourself as a reminder. So if you could do that and hand it in. And then pray, not only is that the last one, we'll pray for Christmas Cafe, but Christmas Eve, all those series uh, coming up, this one, uh, that would be great. And if you can't pray five minutes a day, five times a week, and you remember, just pray anytime. Because what we're excited about, and I've shared many times, if you pray, God is going to act, and he already is. And I have great confidence in his ability to answer the prayers of his people. So I want to encourage you to do that. You know, if I were to ask you this morning, what encourages you? And at the same time ask you, have you ever asked yourself, what time in history are we on God's clock? Ever thought about that? In fact, isn't it easy to lose track of time? When we lose track of time, what happens to us? Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not so good. But at this conference this week, I heard things, and I usually think of myself as a person fairly informed, uh, fairly knowledgeable about what's happening around the world. Folks, I need to tell you, my categories were blown. My faith was stretched in a great and a wonderful way. As they began to share that at this conference called Call to All, that uh, the clock is ticking. And uh, about in 2007, 360 men who are heads of mission organizations around the world got together. And they began to map and target the fact that there are, they've been able to identify there are 1,400 people groups on this earth still remaining who are unreached, but not only unreached, they're untargeted. That means nobody was planning to go there. And one of the reasons they're so, they're so dangerous, you can get killed going into these places. And so while they were there, they, they sort of made a call saying, who of us will agree to target these, these remaining people groups? And in a two or three day conference, they chose 700 of them, which meant they had cut that in half. That is, there's only 1,400 people groups left on earth that have not had some witness or knowledge of Jesus. And they cut that in half in two to three days. And while they were rejoicing, all of a sudden it hit them, wait a minute, we still have half to go. <laughs> there's still 700, nobody's planning to do anything. And so while they were there, uh, the heads of Campus Crusade and YWAM among the others said, well, I'll tell you what, we'll take half if you'll take half, and then... We'll, we'll see what happens. Fast forward now to 2011, getting ready for 2012. 
Of those 1,400 people groups, which a people group has 40,000 people or more, and they also means they have no language, the Bible's not written in their language, there's no witness there, there's no missionaries, no Christians, no presence, no anything, that in 2011, the end of this year, there are only 460 who remain. Folks, that is unbelievable. That means they, they have over 8,000 missionaries and people who volunteered from different places around the world. Don't think of the U.S., but from China, from all Korea, going into these places now where somebody, you can lose your life. What's unbelievable is that now they say they believe by the year 2025 they can have a witness or presence, maybe before, to every people group on the face of the earth. Why is that significant? Because Jesus said the gospel must be preached to all the ethnos, the ethnic groups, and then the end will come. I don't know what that does to you, but that says the clock is ticker, ticking differently than I imagined. In the year 2000, Wycliffe Bible translators, there are 7,000 languages on earth, there are still 2,000 to go. They said it would take them another 150 years to be able to translate the last language that's not yet been, uh, been targeted and reached. They now say between now and that past 11 years, they believe the job can be done by the year 2025. Isn't that unbelievable? Does that excite you? Does it stun you? You see, we kind of go like, I don't know what to do with that. Interrupts my whole plans. Jesus may not have the rest of my life planned out. You know, maybe he's going to interrupt that with what he's doing in this world, and that's really what it's all about. One of the stories that was exciting is that in the year 2000, uh, a Chinese man who lived rurally had a passion to reach farmers and people. And so he set out, and he asked four questions. I don't have time to do it today. And in 2009, by the end of 2009, he had planted, through that movement, 130,000 house churches with 1.7 million baptized believers. He didn't count the ones who haven't been baptized. That's just one man. While we were there, there's another guy whose organization is intent on planting 5 million churches worldwide. And then they asked all of us there, which nation, which unreached people group will you take to help make it happen? How about us as a church? How about us as individuals? I'm not saying when Jesus is coming back, and we know there's going to be great, great pain and persecution and problem in the world before he comes. But folks, this is absolutely mind-blowing of what God is doing in the world. And I hope that encourages you. Some say, I'm scared. <laughs> well, it should encourage us that God's at work. This life isn't all about our plans, our 401ks, or whether our kids get to college. This is about God's plan for this universe. That's what it's about. And the excitement and encouragement is, is God is at work. And the good news is we get to be invited to be part of it. And I hope that encourages you along the way. Um, and I think that's a good lead into this morning. We're going to talk about promises for discouragement. <laughs> okay. Anybody here ever have any discouragements? Or heard of anybody who has them? Beside Dodger fans and Republicans, anybody here have discouragements? <clears throat> Right? Who else do we need to include in that group? Anyhow, you can think about that. Yes, we do. Well, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to discover that Christmas begins on a little minor note. You see, it starts with some discouragement. What do I mean by that? Luke chapter 1 is the story of the birth of not one baby, but two. And all are part of God's incredible plan of redemption for this world. And in Luke chapter 1, we discover that God is at work where some people didn't even imagine he could be. 
Verse 5, it talks about a man named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth were considered righteous in the eyes of God. That's important. We'll see in a moment. But it also said they were without children, which is enormous pain, particularly in that culture. And also in that culture, when it says a woman is barren, there's some impl implications that maybe she lacks God's favor for some reason. She did something wrong. And that's why it's important the first verse blows that myth by saying, no, they were righteous in the eyes of God but could not have children. And one day when Zechariah was serving in the temple his priestly duties, his whole morning was interrupted when an angel showed up. And um, we're going to see in a little bit that uh, he said, hey, how are you doing? And uh, uh, he didn't say that at all. In fact, it says that he had a meltdown. And uh, the angel speaks to him and announces the fact that their prayers have been heard, they're going to have a son, but not just any son. This would be a special son. He would be the forerunner to the Messiah, which meant something else was going to happen. If the forerunner to the Messiah was here, what does that mean that's not far off, that the Messiah himself is coming? The hope of every Jewish person would be one day Messiah would come to deliver their people and deliver their nation. And then it said there's a special way you're to raise this boy and that he would have an impact not only of, on the people in the land, but it says that he would also then make a difference in families. And he would turn the hearts of those who've gone in different directions back to God. And Zechariah is so thrilled. He starts doing a little dance and he celebrates. And we're going to see that's not exactly what happened. But he returns home. He talks to his wife, and they conceive, and the rest of the story unfolds in front of us. But as we look at this story this morning, there's some questions that are raised in my mind. And we want to ask those together. The first one is this. When facing disappointment, we need to ask some questions. What direction am I headed? Now, what do I mean by that? Well, where do I go in my disappointments? It says, the Christmas story grows out of some major disappointment. An elderly couple unable to have children in a culture that interprets barrenness often as a sign of God's disfavor. That's where it begins. They had carried this disappointment. They wanted children. You know how important it was in the life of a mother and also a father in those days. And so this account is a wonderful myth buster. That's why it mentions they were righteous in the eyes of God to begin with. You see... The first statement is that, that, yes, they couldn't have children, but it had nothing to do with their lifestyle or they had disappointed God. But it was all about God was planning to do something bigger in their life later on. And it also says that in spite of their disappointments, they had plugged into God and said, God, we're going to follow your ways regardless of what happens. That's what this is about. Because you see, the Christmas story in, involves a lot here. First of all, there are characters and then we see a God who works with those characters. We see their responses, and we also see the plan of God unfold in this, this passage. And you know what? He's still doing the same thing 21 centuries later. So in spite of their disappointment, they're plugged into God and to God's best for their lives. Now, folks, isn't it true that our true colors are revealed most in our disappointments? I mean, who can't get excited and say God's wonderful, life's great, and treat everybody nice when things are going well? But when disappointment, discouragement, difficulty, pain, or loss come, that's where we discover who we really are. <laughs> and sometimes it's not pretty. And so we begin to see something here. 
uh, that in, in most of our lives, you have two options when we're in disappointment. What? We can move toward God or we can move away from Him. And this couple has chosen to move toward God. Now, about you, but I know who people who've experienced great loss, pain, and disappointment and have used it as an excuse for poor choices and worse behavior. We all know some people like that. Well, you can't expect me to be any different. This happened to me back then. At the same time, I know people who've experienced just as much pain, disappointment, and loss who've done the opposite. They've turned to God. And they said, this stinks, but you know what? God is my hope. That's the direction I'm going. And so they pursue the right way. They begin to take the right path. You know, promises that we're talking about in this series are something incredibly powerful and delicious. And uh, I, I was just picked up one. Uh, some, how many of you have a promise book of some kind? This one, I think, is from the old Promise Keepers Day. This is promises for men. There's promises for women. There's promises for tea drinkers. There's promises for golfers. You know, there's promises for knitters. You know, you can find them for, for whoever you are. Uh, they'll be out there. And uh, this one, I just turned and it talked about um, priorities. And it says here, he who pursues righteousness and love finds life, prosperity, and honor. And so what they're saying, this couple, is, well, life isn't working out the way I want, but I'm just going to stay on the path pursuing God. And you know what? God is showing up, and something's going to happen much later in their life because they have chosen this path. You see, folks, it's not just about where we are right now and what's happened to me or what's happened in the past. It's the direction I'm headed that's going to determine the outcome of my life. And because that's where we're going to end up, where we're headed right now. So if we need to make some mid-course corrections, now's the time. So we can enter into the fulfillment of what God has promised. You know, there's some big league faith in the Bible that you see demonstrated. And one of my favorites is in Habakkuk, that little book, that chapter 3. And you know the passage where at the end of the book it says, Though there's no leaves on the tree, no fruit on the vine, no cattle in the field. It says there's a total economic collapse. Everything is crashed. There's no hope. The people are being invaded. He says, yet I will rejoice in God my Savior. And then he goes on and tells us what happens to people who rejoice later in that passage. But it's the idea, no matter what happens to me, I'm staying on that path that this couple chose. A path that's right, a path that follows hard after God. And you see, those people end up with no regrets. Oh, you may have lots of disappointments along the way, but at the end of our lives, there's no regrets. For those who have pursued hard after God. You might even lose your life along the way, as some of these believers we've heard about and we've shared before have lost. But you know what? There's no regrets because they're in eternal bliss right now in the presence of their Savior. The only regret, the only disappointment will be the people who will sing, but I did it my way. See, I did it my way, not the way of promise, not the way God had laid out for me, but I did it my way. There will be lots of remorse. It will become a mournful song one day. Second question is, have I invited God into my disappointments? Now, this couple did. How do we know that? If you take a look at verse... Um, um, 13, the angel says to Zechariah, he says he's overwhelmed, he's shaken. You know what? I think I'd probably be a little shook. Have anybody talked to an angel recently? You know, it means shining one. Who knows what he appeared like, but it's enough to unzip Zechariah. And he kind of melts in a heap. And we'll see uh, the angel helps pick him back up here at the same time. He has this meltdown. By the way, uh, do angels get involved today in people's lives? Or is that just something for the Bible? You think they do? Mm -hmm. How would we know? Sometimes we just don't. But in this case, 
We know they get involved in human affairs, and that's God's choice. So here's Zechariah. He's in the temple, and uh, he is offering sacrifices. There's a large crowd outside. I forgot to mention there were 18,000 priests in that day. And a priest served two times a year in the temple for one week each, maybe spring and fall. And so they would come, and this is one of his. And now he's the one offering the incense for the sacrifice. The people are waiting outside for knowledge of their atonement. They're gathered together because they know they need forgiveness. Anybody here know you need forgiveness? Good place to be. That's where they were. That's what this was all about. And only one time in a priest's life did he serve to offer the sacrifice in his whole lifetime. And this is Zachariah's day. That's why this is in here. It's a big day. And what a coincidence. An angel shows up at the same time. He says, Zach, I didn't know you'd be here. Isn't that what it says? No, of course he knew he would be there. He was targeted. And so for this most important day of his career, far more happens to Zechariah than he can ever imagine. But verse 13, he says, your prayer has been heard. What prayer? You see, he had been praying for he and his wife for probably decades to have a child. And now it says they're too old. Decade after decade, it came and went, and there's no baby. And now an angel shows up, and he says, guess what? You're going to have a baby. You're going to have a son. And so what it lets us know is that one of the great keys to handling our disappointment so that we don't end up with bitterness and without giving up is what? We invite God into our pain, into our barrenness. Anybody here have any of that? Have you invited God into the areas of your barrenness? That is where there's been pain, where there's been loss, where it's not happening right now. Things aren't working out the way you want. Let me help you a little bit. You don't have to raise your hands on this. How many of your family is just the way you want it to be? Very few. There's disappointment in marriage. There's disappointment with children or grandkids. Maybe you're having pain in your finances or a job isn't working out the way you want or your health or you're struggling with something on the inside nobody else really knows about but you've battled with it for a long time. Have you ever invited God into it? That's what this is about. Invite God into your disappointments. I want you to do that right now. Just take a moment. Whatever the disappointment, whatever the barrenness is, you say, Jesus, would you come in? Maybe life isn't working out the way you want it. And maybe it won't turn out the way that you want, but have you invited him to be part of that? We know that they had done that. And so they weren't carrying their own pain alone. And we also have every indication that even if God had not answered their prayer, they would have continued to worship and serve him. And that's the key anyhow, folks. God doesn't have to answer it on this earth. He might that he may do it far more than we can imagine. The point is we've given it to him and guaranteed he will take care of it, eternally speaking, if not right now. And so they've turned it over to him. And notice, too, that he announces the birth of a son, but not just any son, but a prophet. And not just any prophet. You see, the prayer was for the prophet who would precede the Messiah. This is one of the most significant prophets in all the history of Israel. This would be their son, which... Reminds me of something else when you pray. God has far in mind, more in mind, for the answer to your prayer than you do. See, God says, he waited so long. It wasn't just to give him a baby. It was to be a son, yes, but a son who'd be a prophet for all the people. Think about it this way. Are my prayers designed not just to bless me? How many of my prayers are designed to bless other people if I get the answer? And not just people, but to help promote and expand the kingdom of God. Now, they didn't even know that's what was going to happen. But that's what God had in mind. It also reveals something else. God 
who is powerful and mighty, has purposes and a mission for us and for our prayer and for our family. And you know what else? It's always bigger than our own. You see? I think it reveals something else. That we often ask for too little because we underestimate God's power and his mission and how we fit into that. So we ask for too little. I think when we get to heaven and God's going to say, hey, let me look at your old prayer record here. He says, wow, you sure didn't ask for much, did you? A couple of cars here, a house, a job, you know, a few other things, and maybe to, to marry somebody. And, but was that all? He said, you know, I had so much more for you and so much more for your kids and your family. Why didn't you ask me? So question is, what are your dreams right now? What are you asking God for at Christmas time? Is it just to have a nice little time when the family gets together? How about somebody being impacted for Christ? How about God using your life in a way that blesses more than you could ever imagine in the years to come? Why not ask him? That's what's implied here. Because God had more in mind than Zachariah and Elizabeth did. Third question. If God answers and he gives some directions to my life, am I prepared to follow those directions? Now look at verse 15. In fact, it says, uh, For he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He'll never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. And then he talks in, in a moment we're going to see even more for him. But this whole idea, of, which means you have to give him some parental guidance and direction. To let him know who he is, who God told him he would be. By the way, it says he'd be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth, which is interesting. They were to raise a son for God's purposes. And here's what he's saying. Yeah, you can have plans for your son, but they're secondary to mine, God says. Folks, think about our family. What are our plans for our kids? You know, what are we preparing our families for? You know, I know people say, well, I want my kids to be safe, particularly in this dangerous world. And that's true. Hey, that's okay. When they grow up, you want them to be safe. You say, yeah, and then when they get older, I want them to at least to be you know, successful according to the culture standards. Well, that's okay for a while too, but is that all? God said there's far more than that. I want them for my purposes. I want them to be influencers. I want them to have an impact. What was great at this conference, I did not share this in the first service, there was a whole track for the business world. And how God is using the business world to impact uh, countries, places where missionaries could never get in to spread the gospel. Starting businesses, microenterprises, all these incredible things. Fascinating stuff. Wish I had time just to talk to you all about that. But God's saying, hey, I've got plans. And by the way, the world isn't going to be won by just traditional missionaries or pastors. It's going to take business medical people to get into these places where people like me and you can't get in unless you're one of those which is an exciting thought as well, and also the impact of our own communities here. See, God has a greater mission. And he says, I've set your kids aside for my promises and my purposes. Now, folks, how high a priority is that for us? We just finished our semester in Men's Summit. It was great to have guys together here, about a quarter of the men in the church who came over a period of time. And, and one of the things that it was all about, we finished writing a mission statement. We spent a whole semester talking about our purpose and mission and how it fits in and how our business fits in for kingdom purposes and our family and all those things. We're not done. We're just beginning. In fact, we're going to launch it because we're going to a whole new level next semester on the 13th of January, Friday morning, the 13th, guys. And by the way, there's not much else going on at 6 in the morning. So come on out. Love to have you there. There's another question we want to ask here. It's this one. 
Do I anticipate God's favor, grace in my future to promote his kingdom? You see, the promises of God reveal his intentions not only to bless Zachariah and Elizabeth, but notice all of God's people. Look at verse 16 and 17. It says, he will, be, he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord or the Messiah. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to, the, to their children. And he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. What's he talking about? He's saying, Zechariah, you have no idea what I'm planning to do in your future through your son and through your family. Do we live in the anticipation of what God's promises say about our future? It reveals that his plan gives a high priority to the family. We alluded to this before. But he's referring back to the last verse of the Old Testament. Where he says that Elijah would come, or a man like him, who's John. By the way, what did John the Baptist and Frosty the Snowman have in common? Remember that? They have the same middle name. Okay, thought I'd throw that out. That was theological, okay? Where was I? Oh, yeah, the family. And what he's talking about is God turning the hearts of the fathers back to their children. Is that a problem anywhere in the world? How many think it is? Folks, only one in four kids born in America today makes it to age 18 with both parents. One in four. 75% don't. And this isn't here to make anyone feel bad because there are many people who've been through a divorce or separation. They didn't want it. They tried everything they did, could to keep it together. It's saying that God says when it's that kind of condition, there's a curse upon the land. And John came to help with the Messiah to reverse that curse. We have one on this country. That only God can step in. And the family is part of what he's doing. You know what it means when you have that? You have a culture that's living for itself. That's what that's all about. And you know what I believe repentance is? I read something the other day that repentance, we normally think we did some gross sin over here or there. Instead of saying, God, I'm putting everything else ahead of you. I'm putting my needs ahead of other people. I need to repent of that every day. When I'm putting my plans ahead of God, when I've ignored him, when I'm putting me first ahead of the family and my business and all these things I've got to do are so important, including ladies, this time of Christmas because you just have to get it ready. Just be careful. Is that, where is that? And that's what he's saying. And you know what's, what's great to know this, folks? The reason we don't have to look out for ourselves first, even though the culture tells you to do, because God promises to meet our needs if we follow him. That's what this is all about. That's what the promises say. I'm taking care of your tomorrow. That's what he's telling Zachariah and Elizabeth here. He's saying, I'm going to take care of you. And if we're not convinced of God's goodness in our future, you know what we'll do? We'll choose our own path. We'll follow our own reasoning. And we will move away from grace. Did you catch that? If I am not believing in God's promises, I'm moving away from grace because I'm trusting myself and I'm going to live a graceless life. This means it's all up to me if it's going to be. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be there. I want to be surrounded by the favor grace of God, which is moving according to his promises so I can discover his best. I, heard, I read two articles this past week. One of them was called How to Overcome Frustration. The other one was called Entering a Valley Season Well. 
You see, how and why we can anticipate God's favor gaze for our future is simply this, because God is present today, he'll be with us tomorrow, and the days after. There will be grace and favor in my life because of his presence. I can bank on that. You can bank on it. The promises come to remind us of that over and over. He's already living in your future. He's already operating in your future right now. Maybe not according to my plans, but certainly according to his. And maybe it's true that if we're intent on following him and living for his kingdom purposes, we can be assured of his blessing. And you know what? Maybe your dreams will all be fulfilled on this earth. But if they're given to Christ, they will all be fulfilled in their entirety when we're with him forever and ever. What a great, incredible promise. This lady's article was how to overcome frustration. She suggests five things. Here's what she says. Remember, Christians aren't exempt from facing problems. True? Yep. And then she says, well, you know, some of our problems are self-inflicted, and, and unfortunately they are. But she says, now listen to this. Use whatever comes into your life, whether it's pain or pleasure, compliment or criticism, justice or injustice. Don't just say, get it out. He says, she says, use it. And the next principle helps us know how. Here's what she says. Expect God to supply you with strength to transform everything that comes your way. Did you catch that? Expect God to supply you with strength to trans transform everything that comes your way to make it contribute to the central purpose for which you live. I need to say that again. Expect God to supply you with strength to transform everything that comes in your life, good, bad, ugly, to make it contribute to the central purpose for which you live. That assumes we have a central purpose for which we're living, other than just our own satisfaction. And that's why we spent the time together in, in Men's Summit talking about God's purpose and mission for our life. He says, she says here, expect God to use it to contribute to that purpose. Then number four, look for something good to come out of everything that appears to be bad. Look for something good to come out of everything that appears bad. Now, is that just kind of power positive thinking? Is there any biblical reference for that? Can anybody think of one? Sounds like Romans 8.28 to me. Um, how many here um, enjoy eating fruit or vegetables? Plants? Well, how many here like, uh, don't like avocados? Okay, we have a few avocados. Any of those of you who do not like avocado but do uh, like uh, guacamole? No? Okay. Well, my kids didn't like avocado until they tried guacamole. You got to throw a few chips in there and they did. So... This is the, uh, the Christmas illustration of the avocado, okay? And so for those of you who aren't, or you could throw any other fruit in there if you don't like it, but here's the avocado. It's blue for Christmas. And let's say the avocado represents a problem for those of you who don't like it, okay? What's in the middle of the avocado? A what? A seed, right? How big? Big. That's why I used it. Okay. And the seed does what? When you eat it, nothing. But you hang on to it, and what do you do with it? Yeah, it'll grow. It'll produce more. And we're going to call this the good, because it can turn it into guacamole. But it's the promises of God. Now, if you can find another fruit you like better, 
substitute that. But whatever it says, whenever the problem comes along, am I looking for the good God will bring from it? That's a biblical principle, folks. That's who he is. God makes guacamole, or he can make ice cream out of it if he wants, whatever something you would like. He will bring good out of the problems in our life. That's the God that we have. It may not always come when we want, but it will come because that's who he is. And then she says, number five, find someone who is struggling and help them overcome their problems. How great. Instead of just being hang up, how am I doing? Find someone else. My little mother, uh, over the years, she, she was abandoned at age 47, died at 97. 50 years, she lived alone. And she would say when it was a discouraging day or she felt lonely, she'd pick up the phone and call somebody else she knew was having a harder time than she did. She did that for decades, in addition to staying extremely busy with her ministries and teaching and all the things that she did. And that's also, and by the way, it says that, I told you before, the promise in, in Habakkuk, he says, though there's no fruit, there's no cattle, the economy has gone flat. It's, it's evaporated. I will rejoice in God my Savior. And then you read the last verse right after it says, For he causes me to go upon the heights and the mountains like deer, with deer feet. Uh, what is that about? It's just saying a person who is praising God, looking for the good of God and the promises in the middle of their problems, begin to rise above this world. God takes you above your circumstances into a different realm where now you're looking for him instead of just our circumstances going to change in my life. And so the angels announce to Zechariah, he's euphoric, he's going to have a son, he does a little victory dance, right? Unfortunately, he doesn't. Notice what he says. Zechariah says to the angel, how can I be sure this is going to happen? I'm an old man and my wife is no longer a spring chick herself. What is he saying? He's saying, I don't believe it. He just told an angel it isn't going to happen. That's what he's done. An angel sent from God. In fact, he lets him know that. We're going to we'll see in just a moment. Why? Can you imagine somebody wouldn't believe a promise from God himself? Can you imagine that? We'd never do that, would we? You see, it was too good to be true. He had braced himself for dec decades not to be disappointed anymore and to think he might have a son and then that might hurt too much to think about it if it didn't happen. But his eyes were on his limitations and his experience. I'm too old for God to do miracles. Oh, he could do miracles for Aunt Susie and Uncle Tom over here, but, but me? Now, folks, we wouldn't say that out loud. Oh, don't get me wrong. I believe God can do miracles, just not for me right now in my situation. And you know what? We're just like them. We do the same thing. And that leads to the fifth question. How does your faith and my faith limit God? See, what have we said God can't do or he won't do? What have we said that he can't do or, or won't do? Now look at verse 18. Uh, he, <clears throat> When you think about doubt, isn't it a killjoy? I've heard people say, well, you know, God and all his rules are, are the killjoy. No, it's not. God isn't any killjoy. He's the joy giver. Doubt is the killjoy. And so how does God work with doubters? Does he say, too bad, so sad. You've had your opportunity. I'm going to get somebody else. He could have done that. But Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that God is the author, the beginner of our faith, and the completer, the developer. 
And I don't know about you, but that gives me great hope. I used to say my patron saint was Thomas. What was his nickname? The apostle? Doubting? Doubt. How would you like to have that for your nickname? Doubting Thomas. Well, if anybody represented me as a young man, I just, I had so much trouble believing anything until God pointed me toward his promises. And so the angel says here, he says, God's promises, look at what he tells him. The angel said, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. It was he who sent me to bring you this good news. He says, you're arguing with God, not me, buddy. But now, since you didn't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. But look at this. For my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. Do you love that? I do. Because here's what God is saying. He says, God's promises are good even if your faith isn't. And why is that true? Because we're here because God's plan is so big that human doubt cannot stop it. And this John, this baby, will be the forerunner to the Messiah. And all of history has pointed to this moment when this baby would come because the prophets foretold it for hundreds of years before. And God wants redemption for his people. And a little doubt from Zechariah isn't going to stop it. That encourages me, folks. That encourages me. It says God's plan is too important to let human limitations stop it. Does that give you hope? See, the promises are there whether I believe it today or not. I pick them up tomorrow, it's still true. God's going to do it. You will not find one promise in Scripture God has not kept. No one ever will. And he's got more to come. The only, only ones left are what is yet to be fulfilled. However, Zach's doubt here curbs how much he gets to enjoy God's promises. You know, the angel throws the penalty flag. And he says, guess what, bud? For nine months, you're going to have time to think this over. You won't be able to speak for nine months. Which means he's got a lot of time on his hand to do some thinking. He's got to write notes. Begins to think about what God was trying to say to him. Now, folks, doubt and unbelief always limit our enjoyment of God and what he wants to do. And I probably have a sneaking suspicion I'm not the only one who's limited my own joy many times because I didn't believe what God said. So, number six. What promises do you and I need to be counting on right now? What promises do we need to count? Let me give you a little clue. What areas of barrenness do you have in your own life? What do I mean by that? Well, where is it just not happening the way you'd hoped it would? Is it at home? Is it in your marriage with your kids, your grandkids? Maybe you're single, you wanted to be married. Maybe your job isn't clicking on all cylinders. Maybe your finances are a little strained. That's the place to begin. But I also want to encourage you to claim promises in every area. Because just because it's clicking on all cylinders today doesn't mean it will tomorrow. Right? We have no guarantees that the economy is going to stay strong. Everything will be wonderful in the future. That's not guaranteed by God. What's guaranteed are his promises of what he says he will do. This was the other article I read on um, when you enter a valley. Here's some suggestions the author says. Number one, he says, don't bemoan the season you are in or try to get out of it. <laughs> We'd never do that, would we? Do celebrate that you've graduated from your prior stage and your heavenly father feels you're ready for the next adventure in life. How about that? I like that. Celebrate that you've graduated from your previous stage and now you're ready for a new adventure, which may not feel as good. But Then he says, don't get isolated. Do spend time with friends. 
Don't get too serious about your season. Relax, have some fun. What hobbies or interests have you laid aside for want of time that you might explore that would be restorative? And then don't focus only on how you got into this place or what you did or who did what to you except as you may need to receive healing or where you deliberately walked away and need to give that to God. And then don't set lots of expectations for yourself or plan to finish all those little projects you haven't had time to work on. Do allow yourself to rest. I'm speaking to myself. And do what you feel you need to be doing in the moment. That means it's restorative. Then he says, don't spend much time at the beginning of the valley thinking about what's next. Meaning, is this going to be more of this stuff? Do live in the moment and take joy in the little things in life. This is an important one. He says, don't compromise your dreams or values when a new opportunity comes along, even if you've been waiting forever or taking it seems to be like the sensible thing to do. Rather, do discern the opportunities that come your way. God has what's right for you, and you don't have to be fear. You don't have to fear of being left without a father. And isn't a lot of it come back to that? Do I really have a father who's good, who cares about me? A heavenly father? Then he says, don't fear pain. Do embrace grief or loss, just as Jesus learned through what he suffered. You can learn with him and experience the fellowship of his sufferings in the process. Just some little suggestions about what promises do I need to be counting on now? And then the final question is this. How am I praising God for his promise-keeping nature? What do I mean by that? You see, change isn't going to come by me waiting. Joy doesn't come by waiting for circumstances to improve. You ever notice that? There are some people whose whole hope is things are going to get better, they're going to improve, and then I'm going to be okay. No, you can wait your whole life for that one. Do just the opposite. You see, by claiming and praising God's promise-keeping nature... Notice how the chapter ends. The baby John is born. And there's great rejoicing. But look at verse 67. His dad now begins to sing a song that he's written. He probably wishes he had praised this way before the baby was born. But notice what he says. This prophecy. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has sent a mighty Savior from the royal line of his servant David. Look at verse 70. Just as he promised. <laughs> he got it. He got it. God had promised this all along. That's what he said. He says, I got it now. Through his holy prophets long ago. Zach, the angel was only telling you what God had said uh, hundreds of years before. Um, now, he, now we will be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. He has been merciful to our ancestors by remembering his sacred covenant. The covenant he swore with an oath to our ancestor Abraham. We have been rescued from our enemies so we can serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness for as long as we live. And now he refers to his son, the newborn, John. And you, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High. He gets it. His son, out of all babies born in the history of Israel, is the one who announces the coming of the Messiah. I get a little goosebumps just thinking about that. What, what if your name was in that kind of uh, situation? How amazing that would be. He says, because you will prepare the way for the Lord. He gets it. He knows why his son is coming for greater purposes than his own. You will tell his people how to found salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. And I love this. Because of God's tender mercy, 
The morning light from heaven is about to break upon us. Some translations say the morning star. That's Jesus. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide us to the path of peace, a better way. God's got to always guide us to shalom, that which is best not just for us, but for the community and the world at large. John grew up and became strong in spirit. He lived in the wilderness until he began his public ministry. How many promises does God keep? Just all of them. Which ones are you counting on? Not just for you, but for all those around you this Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed. We shouldn't be because you've already told us who you are, but we realize we've only scratched the surface in embracing all that you are and all you've promised us. Thank you for being a promise-keeping Father. Thank you for being the one who's gone before us in our future. And even if our estimation of the future does not look bright right now, we thank you that you light the way by your very presence. Thank you for your people here at ABF. Thank you for what you are doing right now. As we watch this story this morning, we can guarantee be guaranteed that you're working on our tomorrow and the day after because that's who you are. What's the Spirit of God said to you this morning? First, what areas of your life do you need pain or disappointment do you need to invite Jesus in? Will you do that right now? And then will you say, Father, give me the strength to follow you no matter what happens? To move towards you in my pain or disappointment, not away. And then will you also pray, God, would you use me this season to be a blessing to the people around me? And because I can trust you for taking care of my future, I do not have to focus as much on me. Free me from myself to focus upon you and your promises. And right now, pray for those in your life this Christmas who need Christ. Have you thought of inviting them to Christmas Cafe or this series or Christmas Eve services or have them into your home? Say, God, use me in the lives of those people. That's why we're here. And Father, thank you too for drawing us close to yourself. And planting your son in us by faith so we can be your light in this world. As we bring you our gifts, we're reminded that help us to make you the first gift this Christmas in our hearts, in our minds, and even our wallets. As we give to your work around the world, to what you're doing here, bless each one as they take steps of faith and give what you've given us to give back to you. We pray it in the strong name of Jesus and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. You know, uh, right before you go, I wanted to tell you a quick story. Go ahead and sit down. Then you can stand up again in a moment. The conference, there was a man there in his 70s named Peter Shu. And uh, Peter was from China. He had been imprisoned over five times in his life, I mean years at a time.
as he helped start the underground church in China. And he was here speaking in America through an interpreter, so we had a little trouble trying to figure out what he was saying. But he said, I want to tell you about the last time I was in prison in 1997 in China. He said, they brought in interrogators for me to tell them about my churches and all the people, and we're talking hundreds of thousands of people he's influenced. And he wouldn't tell them anything. So the first interrogator was an older man, a, a military uh, officer, and he began just to slap him and beat him as hard as he could. He said, he hit me in the face over a hundred times. He said, but I didn't feel it. He said, all I felt was pity for him. And finally, after this went on for so long, the interrogator said, you win in disgust. He said, I'm worn out. And he walked out. They sent another guy in who did the same thing and hit him so hard it knocked him on the floor. But he got up and he says, you've worn me out. And he left. He says, but we're sending in the guy, a university professor, who's going to interrogate you for 10 straight days. He ends up in his cell. And one night he's in his cell praying. In the meantime, his brother had been also imprisoned. He had tried to escape. He got out of the cell, but when they caught him, they beat him, broke his legs, and he was back in the cell. And that night, Peter Shue said that the Holy Spirit spoke to him, and he said, I want you to go open the door to your cell. But God, he said, just push it. He said, it opened like the book of Acts for Peter. He said, I want you to go down and open the cell of your brother and tell him to leave. But God, he went down, it opened. He said, God has told me, you must go. His brother just looked at him like, are you crazy? He quickly shut the door, went back to his cell, and along came the guards a little later saying, where is the prisoner? Where did he go? And they came and interrogated him, hit him some more. He said, I don't know anything. I don't know what you're talking about. He looked outside and saw it was raining. He said, there's no way he could escape. Two years later, Peter himself was released from prison without explanation. A relative came and had a cell phone and said, there's a call for you. It was his brother who was now in Germany who had escaped two years before. Peter had no idea what happened. And then as he was released, he was allowed to get asylum and come to the United States. He went on to tell this story about how God continually works in our future according to ways we would never have known. Our brothers and sisters around the world are not worried about are they going to go home and watch the ball game this afternoon or have a nice Christmas in the way we do. They're basically struggling to hold on to their faith and they may lose their lives or be in prison because of it. But you know what? They have incredible hope. And one of their goals is to see the whole world one to Christ. And they talk about returning to Jerusalem to see the toughest place on earth, the Middle East, one to Christ. They're willing to lay down their lives to make it happen. I just thought I'd tell you that to encourage you. Let's stand together. Father, send us from here, locked on your promises, ready to share it with those around us. Bless your people as we go, we ask in Jesus' name, and all God's family said. Hey, greet two or three on the way out. Have a wonderful day. God bless you for coming.